Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Even though here in Australia, the number of people infected with coronavirus seems to be lessening and community transmission seems to be on the decline, that's not the case for others around the world. It is said that where countries have a strong, accessible and affordable healthcare system, the outcomes for populations during the pandemic are much better. Well, let's go to the United States where healthcare is not accessible and is not affordable and where we are now calling New York the epicentre of the pandemic. I had an opportunity to speak with Suzanne Hadley, a human rights lawyer, a labour activist and currently working with the Food Chain Workers Alliance about how the US is handling the coronavirus pandemic. At least 100 transportation workers, New York City transportation workers have died. Um, Those who drive our subways and drive our buses, we know uh, of at least 50 New York City doormen and janitors who have died. Um, and, and in that case, you know, those numbers died as a result of being exposed to the, um, the virus on the job um, because they were con- continuing to work within the infrastructure of what was deemed um, essential services. Um, and those numbers also themselves, we don't know how accurate they are because I mean, workers are counted when they have unions to actually take the time and and do that count. And there's sort of many in those sorts of industries that may not be unionized. Um, And at least over 40 educators who have died, who um, were exposed early on before the schools were closed. Um, And it was only a few days ago that a U-Haul, which is one of these kind of delivery trucks that you rent in the United States uh, was found outside of a Brooklyn, New York funeral home with about a hundred bodies in there that were just basically kind of coming out of the hospitals and waiting to be sorted. And, you know, um, periodically you hear of situations where someone's relative has been, you know, was picked up and sent to the hospital uh, because they were having a respiratory attack that they were assuming was the virus and um, and then didn't and then never heard from the relative or the hospital and um, and was sort of um, unable to locate them and um, and for whatever reason and in the hospitals themselves are very overwhelmed um, and the fact that for the past, 10, 20 years, they've uh, shut down about 19 New York City hospitals hasn't helped help the matter. Um, my cousin is a emergency room nurse in a Bronx hospital and other nurses were describing the situation with, you know, um, the hallways of the ERs being overwhelmed and you know, the, the Bronx and, and um, you know, parts of Brooklyn and, and, and parts of Queens, including this neighborhood in Elmhurst, you know, they're very highly um, dense in terms of population. They're highly populated, many immigrant communities, many worker communities, poor and low income communities. Um, they were using 
um, hotels that were shut down to house um, homeless who also needed to, thanks to the efforts of community activists, who also needed to be um, kept safe and to house people who needed housing after leaving the hospital. And um, I recall hearing like one hotel, which is next to this um, place called the People's Forum, where we hold a lot of political events, um, that uh, one day they just found um, five deceased people in, in, in the hotel. And these, and these are kind of like reports that like are coming through the media and are like coming through social media amongst New Yorkers. Um, but I think that we also at the same time don't even have full scope of, of what um, that has meant in terms of the death rate. And all over the United States, um, it's a non-white, poor and non-white communities who have um, disproportionately uh, been impacted in terms of, of sickness and, and, and death. And, um, and a lot of that is connected to the fact that they still have to work and they, they can't afford to, uh, they don't, they're not in the kinds of jobs where, where they can work from home or where they're given the kind of benefits that can protect themselves like sick, you know, sick pay, et cetera. It's also because they live, they might live in more crowded neighborhoods. And it's also because uh, systematic sort of structural racism and lack of health care um, has created more pre-existing conditions within these communities. And in New York, um, in fact, it's Latino, uh, Latino immigrants who have, have uh, the highest percentage of deaths comparably with, with Black Americans being um, the second. But in some cities, you'll see a percentage of like 50, 50%, 70% of uh, death of the coronavirus death rates being among Black, um, black communities. And it's all sort of very much connected to historical lack of access to healthcare, historical kind of lack, lack of access to, um, to, to certain jobs, etc. I wanted to ask you what is happening in the prison system and among um, the prison population, which again, we know dispropor- disproportionately impacts certain communities over others. Yes, we're starting to see the virus spread through prison populations around the country, um, including in um, the what we are calling the camps, in in which migrants who have come um, across the U.S.-Mexican border are being kept, um, including children. Um, And there is a lot of movement by anti-mass incarceration and abolitionist groups who are demanding the release of, uh, at the very least, nonviolent offenders um, and are are demanding also that, you know, the prisons um, provide and offer necessary protection for prisoners and um, try um, to incorporate some kind of social distancing to protect the prisoners, but the main demand um, is uh, the, re- the release of uh, these prisoners and, um, and detainees. And um, there, there's been like recently uh, a success in um, a case that I heard come out of San Diego 
in which um, a local a detention local detention center um, by the U.S. Mexico border uh, is now being told that they have to release um, the detainees who uh, are most vulnerable to the virus that have pre-existing health conditions. Um, and that was an injunction filed in court by some local activists and, and local lawyers. Uh, so similar efforts are happening in, in different places. And, you know, there's protests, caravan protests that are happening around the prisons. Um, and <clears throat> there's this, you know, growing people's demands to release the prisoners. Um, and at the same time, growing demand to make sure that um, at this present moment that they're doing what they can to protect the prisoners. And there, you know, there are others that are trying to also employ legal tactics to do that too. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking with Suzanne Heidelie, a human rights lawyer, a labour activist, and currently working with the Food Chain Workers Alliance about how the US is handling the pandemic. The, the demand for prisoners to be released, which absolutely I support and um, comrades and activists in Australia support, it is a bit of a double-edged sword though because in Australia a very significant number of prisoners are released to homelessness. Um, is that the case in the United States and how do we um, continue to support and protect um, prisoners that are exiting prison that might be exiting to homelessness, which again is a situation in which they are not receiving adequate health care and also may not be um, protected from the spread of coronavirus. Yeah, I think that, you know, on, on one level, see, part of what's happening at this moment is that um, you know, what, what I'm calling mutual aid efforts, right, is um, sort of this tendency for the people to kind of create these grassroots efforts to respond to the moment on their own. And I think that um, some of, some of the, that uh, theory of mutual aid, I feel like, has been co-opted in, in some ways by nonprofit industrial complex and like and like the mainstream but a lot of that kind of still lives in um anti-racist anti-fascist anti-capitalist um, movements right and i think that uh, and particularly the ones that are community-based i think that they're you know that um that they are thinking about that in terms of the long term and how to support these how to support these prisoners um, um, and how to support them, not, you know, not just when it comes to homes, but, um, I think to think about how, how to support their families in the, like, throughout the process and how to support them in getting income, how to support them in also kind of reintegrating, not just into society, but like in, in like opportunities to give them to um, integrate into the movement. But then the other side is that we also have to demand those services from, um, from the government. And, you know, we have a very high degree of homelessness in New York City as it is. I mean, in, in the New York City public schools, there are close to 200,000 homeless children that enrolled in New York City public schools. So, so it's, 
it's already an enormous um, an enormous challenge. That means that they live in shelters or they're, they're in transitional housing. Doesn't necessarily mean that they live on, on the street, but it, we already have a high percentage of homelessness. Um, but <clears throat> I mean, a lot of these prison protests also are not happening just in the city. They're happening like in, in the state prisons of which kind of, for example, in more, more rural areas and where there are movements sort of on the ground that are sort of mobilizing to support them should, should that happen. I mean, it, you know, we have been fighting for a very long time to get um, bail, right? To get um, bail reform in New York um, because in many of these prisons, the vast majority of the people who are in there are awaiting trial or haven't been convicted of anything. Um, but they're either not given bail or they're given high, like very, very, very so high bail amounts. Um, so there have been movements, for example, to raise money, like for the, um, like the, there's like the bailout mama's movement where um, on Mother's Day, People like it's a black let black women led movement to raise funds to get mothers who are incarcerated because they can't afford bail to be bailed out to be with their families on Mother's Day. Um, you know, and that was connected to this movement for bail reform. And we were just sort of we were just at a period when we thought that the bail reform bill would pass. And, and then um, it got stifled by um, some right-wing opposition in the state. So <clears throat> I think there's sort of like many, many considerations um, when thinking about that. For the past five weeks, because that's sort of when all of this began, we have been trying to deal with the immediate sort of attack on, on workers um, because their rights are being um, violated within the this uh, within the current situation, um, and you know we we're kind of, sort of looking at like how to protect them at this very moment from dying from the virus, right? Or how to protect them from starving, basically. Or, not starving, that's sort of not something that happens in the United States necessarily like it does in other parts of the world, but how do, how do we protect them when they can't afford to buy food for their families and um, can't afford to pay their rent? Because those are kind of immediate things that are happening and, and there are a lot, of, um, in the, a lot of government policy, local and federal, is not in their favor. And the behavior of the employers is anti-worker, is... Um, you know, the wealthy in, in the United States and, and I'd gather probably elsewhere have um, increased their, their wealth uh, by at least 10, 15% in, in these past five weeks. You know, it's a, it's a particular stage of disaster, of disaster capitalism. So, you know, we have on one end of the spectrum, we have uh, millions of people who have lost their livelihood. Right, and there are millions that are applying for what's it, like 16 million are applying for unemployment, um, and <clears throat> even within that, like I, I really like to look at the uh, low wage workers, like who are already low wage workers, who are already who are already sort of like struggling to um, make ends meet, because you know there are. I mean, <clears throat> it's just like when we say. 
when we use the term a 99%, that's a sort of a very important term, but we have to remember that within the 99%, there's also a bottom, there's, there's also a bottom 10% and there's a bottom 20% and there's, you know, um, and, you know, there, there are some segments of the middle class who, um, who are like also applying for unemployment right now, who are coming from a situation where they have other modes of wealth, right? Let's say like they own a house or, or, uh, or like they'll receive an inheritance or something like that. So and particularly looking at those who um, don't have that kind of fallback or, um, you know, don't have status or um, are, are facing structural racism on, on a daily basis. And, um, you know, so the situation uh, in, in, in terms of, of, of that population of low wage workers losing their jobs, um, it is, is very dire because um, <clears throat> many of them can't, uh, there's many who can't apply for unemployment, federal unemployment, because undocumented workers um, which who are, you know, several million in the United States um, are, can't apply for unemployment because um, they pay taxes, but they don't have social security numbers. So they pay taxes using something else called individual tax ID numbers. And even if they're in families with mixed status, nobody in that family then um, would be able to sort of uh, receive those benefits as a result. And the cash stimulant packages that the federal government set up are also um, benefits that undocumented workers um, can't access. Um, but even for those who, those low wage workers who can access um, unemployment and um, and the cash benefits, it's, it's still really um, not nearly enough, particularly to live in in, in a city like uh, New York City. So, you know and you know, so we're seeing that on one end of the spectrum. I think I was reading the other day about like having a, there was a food line in Queens, New York, that had a line about two thousand people waiting to get food from from a food pantry. And you know, I don't even know if if the, maybe the lines were that long during the Great Depression. So we had to have like this new kind of like uh, population of unemployed people, and people are thinking about well, what does it mean now to organize as, as unemployed or jobless? Um, do we look to like what happened in the 1930s and then what would that movement look like and what would be those demands? And, and those, are, those, are sort of very, those are sort of very early conversations. On the other side of the spectrum, <clears throat> you know, we have states and cities that have declared uh, essential, essential work. Um, and I work, I work for a organization called the Food Chain Workers Alliance, and we are a collective of 33 worker organizations in the food economy. And so, except for the restaurant industry, which has reduced its numbers, and street vendors, all the other aspects of the food economy are still functioning. Farm workers are still working. Food processing is still working, including like in poultry and meat plants. Um, retail and grocery stores are still working. Um, and um, what we're seeing is that the health and safety conditions in, in, um, on farms and particularly in food processing and warehousing, warehousing is also part of uh, the food economy and includes um, 
companies like Amazon, and where not only are, um, are they still working, but production has increased tremendously um, because of um, those sort of being in quarantine and asking now to have sort of every, everything delivered. And so, and, <clears throat> and particularly in processing and warehousing from the very beginning, you know, the problems that the work workers were facing, well, the ones that had children, um, could they get personal leave to make sure that their children are taken care of? Could, if, if they got sick, could they get sick leave? And even in cities, like in city in New York, there are sick day, there are, there's sick leave law, but employers are still not um, giving it, right? Um, we saw sort of a spike in wage theft also um, as this, using the, the quarantine as an excuse right before it began or the, um, um, but getting back to the health and safety conditions and particularly like in meat processing, um, you know, where you have workers standing shoulder to shoulder um, and <clears throat> working on these assembly lines of meat production that the, the, where the line speeds themselves are increasing because the government is continuing to give waivers to these, to these companies to do that. The workers have been getting sick. There were at least, uh, we know of at least 5,000 meat processing workers who've been tested positive. Um, and we know of at least 20 who have died. And again, those are, that's counting that happens in places that are organized. We had been get, getting calls from workers from random cities and towns who work in processing in, in retail that are not connected to any union or worker organization saying that we don't have any masks, we don't have any hand sanitizer, like, you know, they're not doing anything to protect us, like, what, what could we do? And so we're kind of hearing that all the time. And so, and particularly in meat processing, the workers were saying, um, if I get sick, I, I'll make my family, I, like, I have a, like, I, I could, you know, risk my life like, you know, depending on their age and if they have any sicknesses, I can risk my family's life, you know? Um, and, <clears throat> you know, why should I have to work if you're not going to clean, if you're not going to clean the planet, if you're not going to, you know, do something so that we can at least distance ourselves from each other and so on. Um, and so workers began to, in, in places like Georgia, in, in a plant where there was no union, the workers just said, well, we're going to have a walkout and they had a walkout. Right. And, and uh, like, and we, we, we saw that kind of happening periodically and very often, like, I think like up till now we've counted about 150 strikes, not just in food, but a great many of them in the food industry. And the vast majority were wildcat strikes. There were workers saying that like, we're not going to subject ourselves to this kind of risk. Like, you know, um, and with meat processing, it, it, it's it's interesting because you know those are very powerful, um, you know, companies, large food corporations, like very powerful companies. Some of them are multinational, like poultry and, and, and meat companies. And um, the president last week issued an executive order, and so, some of these companies began to close their doors because too many workers were infected. Um, and said that they couldn't continue and, and they needed to clean up and, um, or decide what to do next, right? About 20 plants that, that shut down because of that. But the industry is humongous. And the president, president issued an executive order um, and invoked something called the Defense Production Act, which um, 
has been like used in time of war to redirect production or manufacturing to goods that are essential for national interest. And, um, and in this case, he declared meat processing in the national interest and um, said that he was going to order the meat processing companies to, to remain open or give them the permission to, to remain open. Um, and um, I think that was like in, in response to some uh, workers suing these companies to, Im to implement health and safety standards. But it just, so it's, it's a very, you know, in terms of health and safety, it's a very dire situation. And not just in meat processing, but also with farm workers. But then again, and speaking also from the perspective of like uh, those that I organize with, you know, when we, like, you know, we're working with a group of workers who before the coronavirus, nobody ever thought about them, right? No one ever thought about them. And now all of a sudden, everybody's thinking about them and so what we say to them is like um, you need to understand that these workers are being hyper exploited now because of pre-existing conditions in this capitalist society and in, in, in the food system and um, and that exploitation always existed and if, if you really want to like um, and what we really need to do is to uphold the right for these workers to be able to organize and to build unions and you know because we have very we have a very anti-union culture or anti-worker organization culture in this and so what we see is an opportunity to maybe um change that a little bit for people to start to recognize the importance of worker like workers organizing and workers or not just like joining unions, but organizing themselves and and um, and <clears throat> the importance of of, ha of being of, of first of all having the right to do that and the important the importance of uh, workers doing that to build long term power for themselves, but also their their communities. So that that's sort of like the way that we're approaching it right now. Um, I mean, that's a and you know and that has really kind of been the issue that much of the left is talking about, right? I mean, much of the left in the U.S. Is, is looking at this through the eyes of particularly essential workers, the, the workers right now. I was speaking with Suzanne Adderley, a human rights lawyer, labour activist, and currently working with the Food Chain Workers Alliance about how the U.S. is handling the coronavirus pandemic. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. This week's program was produced in my study at home with the incredible support of 3CR staff. I want to extend a very big thank you to them for ensuring that this program is still able to be heard right across the country. Accent of Women receives the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally by the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Welcome in the New Year back on the